So Matthew chapter 27, uh, we pick up in verse 57, and uh, we're going to read through to verse 61. And Matthew records for us verse 57, chapter 27. Matthew records, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And so as we continue our study in the gospel of Matthew, we come to this passage of Scripture. It's a passage regarding Jesus' burial. And uh, you, you may be aware of this, maybe not, I don't know. But I think there's a real danger when we're reading through the Bible, when we come to familiar passages in the Bible, passages that we've read many times. And I think that that danger is that we say to ourselves, you know, okay, I know all about this story. I'll just keep reading. And when we do that, when we read over it like that, you know, we can miss uh, some important details uh, that the Lord has for us in that story. We can miss, you know, what the Spirit is wishing to speak to us in that moment when we're confronted with familiar passages. And I think the, the passage regarding Jesus' uh, burial is one of those familiar passages um, that we can just uh, read through very quickly. You know, someone might say, I think that the burial of Jesus, uh, you know, in regards to the burial of Jesus, someone might say, yeah, you know, I understand why the death of Jesus on the cross is, is important. And I understand why his resurrection is of great importance. But what's so important about his burial? Hey, um, do you mind? Can you turn the lights on back here just for these people over here? Thank you. Uh, well, I think that there are a number of things to consider here uh, in regards to the importance of his burial. And if we take the time to search them out and allow them to speak to us, I think that, it, that there's a great blessing in it for us. I think it will be encouraging uh, to us, and I think it will strengthen our faith. I think that the uh, account of Jesus' burial is important, first and foremost, because it's, the, it's a story that's recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. I mean, there's only really just a handful of stories that are recorded in each one of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels. You know, the baptism of Jesus is recorded in all four Gospels. The feeding of the 5,000. The triumphal entry. You know, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' arrest in the garden, Peter's denial, Jesus' trial before the Jews and, and Pilate, and of course his crucifixion briefly, all recorded in all four of the Gospels. And the last of these stories, which are recorded in each of the Gospels for us, is Jesus' burial. Which, <clears throat> which one of these stories isn't instructive and vitally important? for us to understand. Of course, they all are. You know, which one of these stories isn't valuable to us as believers? Again, each of them are. 
You know, which one of these stories doesn't have important lessons for us? You know, um, Jesus' burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, it's, it's one of the stories that can be easily overlooked. So, you know, this morning I want to dig into it, and I just want to see what the Lord has for us. Matthew, he kind of jumps right into uh, the story by saying in verse 57, now when, ev- when evening had come, they, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was also uh, a disciple of Jesus. John, in John's gospel, what he does is he kind of uh, introduces the story by saying, John 19, 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea. John wants to remind us of the events that surrounded the crucifixion of Jesus, which we've pieced together from all four of the Gospels. John wants to remind us that it was, uh, it was after Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, it was after Jesus cried out, it is finished, paying, paying the price each of our sins deserved. It was after uh, Jesus bowed his head, yielded up his spirit, and breathed his last. It was after the centurion, a man who was very accustomed to seeing men die, it was upon seeing the way Jesus died, yielding up his spirit as he did. It was after all this that the centurion declared, truly this is the Son of God. Jesus, uh, sorry, John actually adds a few other details found in, in uh, that's not found in the other Gospels that are found in his Gospels. And starting in John 19, 31, 37, we read that the soldiers came to break Jesus' legs, right? Uh, break the legs of those that were also crucified with him that day. You know, they would come with some type of hammer. They would come with some type of club and break the legs of those being crucified in order to hasten their death. And it would hasten their death because it would prevent them from allowing them to push up with their legs in order to get a breath of air. But when they came to Jesus, John tells us that he had already died. And uh, to confirm that, what the soldiers did confirmed that he was already dead as they took, one of them took a spear and thrust it through Jesus's ribs, piercing his heart. And as confirmation that Jesus was dead, blood and water flowed out from his side. And John carefully points out for us that this was all in fulfillment of uh, Scripture, saying, not one of his bones shall be broken, quoting many Old Testament passages and uh, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, quoting Zechariah 12.10. Now it's after these events that Matthew introduces Joseph of Arimathea for us. Verse 57, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Now, both Matthew and John tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. But John tells us that he was a secret follower of Christ, right? For fear of the Jews, 
right? Luke tells us that he was a council member. And so what that means is that he was one of the 72 men uh, that made up the ruling body of the Jewish nation known as the Sanhedrin. And in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Joseph of Arimathea wasn't just a member of that ruling body, but that he was a prominent member of that body. And as we read in Matthew 20, as we read in Matthew 27, verse 53, Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, right? Uh, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was most likely very, very, very wealthy. And we actually will see that in, is the case. We'll see that in just a few minutes. But Luke goes on to tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a good and just man. And boy, isn't that just a priceless description for any man? Uh, Luke is also careful to point out to us that Joseph of Arimathea did not agree to the decision uh, to put Jesus to death. We also know that he was a very devout man in that both Mark and Luke tell us that he was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy, prominent leader of the nation of Israel. He was a good and just man. He was a devout man believing in the word of God. And at some point in the previous three years, he came into contact with Jesus of Nazareth. At some point in those previous three years, he had listened to the, uh, to the teaching of Jesus and his heart was stirred. And he thought to himself, man, this Jesus is not like any of the other men I've ever met. He teaches as one with authority, unlike all the other rabbis. And uh, he teaches as one who truly, truly knows the heart of God the Father. And I'm certain that, you know, Joseph's heart was moved mightily as Jesus taught about the very kingdom that he was patiently waiting for. You know, his heart must have been overcome when Jesus taught about the love and the forgiveness of God that he extends to every individual. The very thing that all men everywhere are desperately in need of. And I'm sure his heart is so moved by this itinerant preacher that he places his faith in him, recognizing him as his Lord and Savior, recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah of, of Israel, and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, albeit uh, secretly. You know, I, I think that there are probably far too many people who follow Jesus secretly. I fear that there are too many people willing to follow Jesus from afar. You know, not wanting to be known openly as one of his disciples out of fear of what other people may think. And I, I think that might be, might have been the case for Joseph of Arimathea because we read in John's gospel, John 9, 22, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, referring to Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So maybe Joseph of Arimathea was afraid that he would lose his position. Proverb 9.25 says, 
The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man is simply a trap for us, right? It's out of fear that Peter denied Jesus, right? Not only, um, you know, not only can fear uh, lead to denial, but it can also lead to hypocrisy, right? Fear will cause us to do things and say things that we would not otherwise dare to even dream of saying or doing. You know, it will cause us to act and say things in front of certain people, you know, in order that, you know, because we're afraid that we're going to lose their favor, lose their respect. But the truth of the matter is, if someone would reject you for confessing Jesus Christ, then, you know, uh, if they would make fun of you for placing uh, your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can rest assured that, that you never had their their respect. You never had their favor, right? Proverbs 29, 5 goes on to say, but in contrast, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. We read in verse 58, Matthew 27, 58, this man went to Pilate and asked uh, for the body of Jesus. You know, how interesting is it that this good and just man yet a fearful man, uh, makes the decision to go to Pilate. How often does God use difficulties in our lives? You know, crisis times in our lives to elicit great faith. You know, all the disciples at this point had forsaken Jesus. One of his disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Another, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples denied even knowing him when he was questioned by a little girl. You know, Jesus was completely abandoned except for a few women who had watched his crucifixion from afar, Matthew tells us. John had most likely departed with Mary by this time in order to console her over the crucifixion of her son. And it's in this context that Joseph of Arimathea decides to take a stand. Joseph of Arimathea. And what he did for Jesus' burial is recorded in all four of the Gospels because of who he was, you know, a rich council member, a a Jewish, uh, you know, leader of the nation because of who he was, a a good and just man? You know what? That's not the case. We don't remember Joseph of Arimathea because he didn't uh, agree with the decision to crucify him. We remember him and we honor him throughout history for the stand that he took in regards to Jesus Christ, right? When there seemed to be nothing Humanly speaking, that Jesus could do for him, he takes a stand, right? He came to the understanding that Jesus is more important than reputation. Jesus made himself of no reputation for us. Joseph of Arimathea came to the understanding that Jesus was more important than position. Jesus left his throne in heaven and humbled himself, taking upon Uh, the form of a bondservant, giving his life as a ransom for many, saving us 
from the penalty of sin. You know, um, Joseph of Arimathea came to the understanding that the reproach of Christ was to be esteemed greater than the riches of this world. Jesus said in Mar uh, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were, be, who were before you. Joseph came to the understanding, just as we need to come to the understanding, that this world has nothing to offer that is greater than Jesus Christ. No amount of fame, no amount of wealth, no position, no amount of respect from men, um, you know, Nothing that we can attain to. There's nothing that, that can compare with Jesus in our lives. And the greatest victory in this life is not what we've gained. It's not what we possess. You know what? It's certainly not what we've accomplished in this life. No, the greatest victories in life come when we take a stand for Jesus Christ. Verse 57 says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also became a disciple of Jesus. This uh, man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. And I think it's interesting that John gives us, again, a little more detail John says in John 19, the last part of verse 38 and 39, John 19, 38, 39, John says, So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Joseph was a secret believer, but he takes a stand. And it seems uh, as if Nicodemus, who was also a secret believer, was emboldened to also take a stand. He took a stand because of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. And it's actually something we see in other places throughout Scripture as well. You know, it's something to, uh, it's to be a further encouragement to each of us, you know, to boldly take stands for Jesus Christ. When Paul was put in prison, he wrote to the church of Philippi, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Paul says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace garden, to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, we also see it in Daniel's life. Daniel 1 verse 8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He's going to take a stand. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Daniel takes a stand. 
he was willing to take a stand for righteousness in a way, I would argue, that encouraged Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to also take a similar stand. You know, one of my favorite examples of all of this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. And it says, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that uh, is on the other side. But he did not tell his father, and Saul was sitting in the outskirts of uh, Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, were wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp, sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sina. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southwards opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart, go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. You know, Jonathan decides to take a stand for the Lord while others are sitting around doing nothing, too afraid to get into the fight. You know, the result of Jonathan's stand is that others began to follow his example. First, it was just his armor bearer. But then uh, the whole army of Israel got into the fight following Jonathan, right? And before you know it, a great victory over the enemies of God is won. I personally believe with my whole heart, if we will take a stand for Jesus, if we will unashamedly let others know we're followers of Christ, then others will be encouraged by our example and they too will take a stand for Jesus Christ. You know, and, bef and before you know it, Victory will be won in the lives of people around us who don't know Jesus. You know, as well as in the lives of those people around us who are just sitting on the fence. You know, souls are in the balance. Lives are at stake. And we don't have the luxury of just sitting back on our laurels now that we're saved. You know, the world is waiting for us to take a stand. And get into the fight. You know, we read a little detail at the very end of John 19.39. And I think it's uh, interesting to observe that Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. The 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes was a costly expression of love. Right? It's an example of taking a stand for Jesus with our resources, right? It reminds me of David. You know, it's one of my favorite stories. I, I've talked with Jeff about 
this story recently. It happens to be one of his favorite stories also. But, uh, you know, it reminds me of David when he was asking to buy the threshing floor from Ornan or Aruna, depending on if you're reading from First Chronicles or Second Samuel. But it reminds me of when David uh, went to buy the threshing floor where ultimately the temple was going to be built. And Ornan said to David, 1 Chronicles 1, uh, 21, 23, he says, take it. He says, it's yours. Take it. Look, I also give you the oxen and burnt offering, the threshing implements for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But then in 1 Chronicles 21, 24, David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. Now, please understand, God's not interested in your money or interested in the gift. He's interested in the heart. That's what he's after. Our gifts to, wor uh, to the Lord in worship, it's not measured by numbers. It's measured by our heart, right? Uh, you remember the story of the widow's mites. Mark chapter 12, 41 through 44 says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which makes a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, as surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who I have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. You know, all the widow had was just a few copper coins, two mites. And she wanted the Lord to have them because he had her heart, right? And to Jesus, those two mites were more valuable than what all the rest of the people gave combined, right? Jesus is after our hearts. Make no mistake about it. Our worship and our service to the Lord, if it's genuine, well, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something to take a stand for the Lord. But there's nothing in comparison what we gain taking that stand, right? You can't compare anything that we possess with what we gain in Christ when we take that stand. Verse 59 says, when Joseph had taken the body. What do you think that was like? <laughs> Taking Jesus' body down from the cross. I mean, did they lower the cross to the ground? Or did they, you know, use a ladder to reach up to him? You know, maybe you've been like me, but, uh, you know, I've driven large nails into pieces of wood. They don't come out real easily. You know, can you just imagine Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrestling with those nails in Jesus' hands? Wrestling with the nail that pierced his feet? Working 
to remove them in such a way as not to cause any further damage to Jesus' body, you know, not wanting to injure him any further. I mean, how long did it take them to remove Jesus from the cross? You know, then after carrying the body away, they probably washed that body, right? They washed the body of Jesus because, well, that's the uh, Jewish custom, right? And, and this custom, it's a very personal and loving custom uh, that's carried out with an extraordinary degree of, of respect and gentleness. And as they washed Jesus' body, cleaning the blood off of him, you know, with, with a rag and with, with some water, his wounds would be revealed to them in greater detail. Right, the nail prints in his hands. You know, the place where that spear was uh, thrust into his side. The, the marks on his brow where he bore the crown of thorns. And the wounds that resulted from the scourging on his back. The scourging, as we learned, that would have been from head to toe. Right, as they washed the body of Jesus, all his wounds became more and more evident. And just think uh, about it. As they washed his body, wiping the blood away, they would wring that wet towel out over a small basin of water that began to turn red with his blood. And in verse 59, we read, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. All four of the Gospels tell us uh, that they wrapped Jesus' uh, Jesus's body in clean white linen. To me, uh, it's just another overwhelming gesture of love for Jesus. You know, they would rip those linen uh, pieces of cloth into strips and they would uh, wrap them around his body, inserting the mixture of aloes and myrrh between those strips. And this was the way the Jews cared for their loved ones. That's how they prepared them for burial. Then they probably carried Jesus' body to the tomb after wrapping him in this way, uh, in the linen, you know, as was the custom. And in verse 60, it says, and laid it, speaking of Jesus' body, in his new tomb, when he, uh, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door, of the tomb and departed. You know, this verse reveals to us a, a couple of things. First, it reveals to us that this was a new tomb, right? Luke tells us no one had laid in that tomb before. Secondly, it tells us that the tomb was actually one that Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for himself. Now, we should, we should understand that Jerusalem was considered the holy city. We know that, of course. You know, it was where the the temple was. And it was where the Messiah would rule his kingdom from. So all of the devout Jews wanted to be buried there in Jerusalem. And that just put the cost of land at a huge premium. Right? And Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb hewn out of the rock um, nearby the temple, which happened to also be near uh, Calvary. And the cost to have men to carve out this uh, tomb with a hammer and chisel 
was wildly expensive, not to mention extremely hard labor. Now, again, because of this, what they would do uh, is they would carve out a, a small room, you know, something like six to nine feet square. And then they would have a little ledge there to lay the body on. And the practice was is they would lay the body there and they would roll a carved stone, uh, you know, the size of a wagon wheel, roughly some, you know, six to eight inches thick. Uh, they would roll that in front of the entrance to the tomb to keep animals and people out. And in a year or two, the minerals in the stone would do their job and all that would be left of the body would just be uh, literally skin and bones. And then that body would be separated and placed into an ossuary, right? Which was just a box the size of the largest bone. And then it would be put aside uh, in order that the entire family could use that tomb. Joseph of Arimathea had this tomb made for him and his entire family. And it was on prime real estate. It was close to the temple. It was very costly. In verse 59, when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So what lessons are we to learn from this passage of Scripture? Well, first off, I think it's worth noting uh, what Paul says to the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said it was all according to the Scriptures. His death, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, it was all prophesied beforehand and recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked. It was not the custom of the Romans to give the body of anyone who was punished for a capital crime over to uh, someone for burial, much less for a decent burial. That's not what the Romans did. Right? As far as the Romans were concerned, the death of a criminal was not something to be mourned. Right? The, those punished for a capital crime were taken to the Valley of Hinnom, which was basically a garbage dump. Uh, there was a fire that burned uh, through that garbage dump 24 hours a day, and the bodies would be thrown there into the dump to be eaten by birds and wild animals, right? Or, at the very best, the other alternatives for the Romans would be that they would throw the criminals into a mass grave of criminals 
and bury him that way. You know, all this was particularly true if the victim was accused of treason. You know, which happened to be the very accusation the Jews brought against Jesus. Right? It says that they made his grave with the wicked. That was the plan. But some 740 years prior to the cross, Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Right? God's plan was for the Savior of the world to be uh, buried among the rich. And it seemed impossible. Right? But it's just another example of God doing what's seemingly impossible. You know what? It's a small detail recorded for us by the Holy Spirit to encourage us again. Nothing is impossible for God. Turn over, if you would, real quick. Turn over to the Gospel of John. And let's look at uh, John, a few verses in John chapter 11. John chapter 11 Verses 39 and 40. John chapter 11, verse 39, 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? You know, after Lazarus' death, Jesus came to raise him from the dead. And he said, take away uh, the stone. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said, uh, Lord, it's been four days. And I love the way the, the King James Version translates what she says. She says, by this time, uh, there is a, uh, uh, by this time, he stinketh. That's, that's what the King James says. You know, the New King James kind of lightens it up by, there's a stench, King James says. He stinketh. Sometimes, I, I guess us men probably would admit that's what our wives say about us. All right? <laughs> Lord, he stinketh. But don't you just love what Jesus said to her? And I believe he's saying it to each one of us this morning. Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Remember Genesis chapter 18? Remember the story there, the Lord told Abraham that Sarah would have a child. And Sarah laughed. She kind of giggles in the tent. And the Lord asked Abraham, hey, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I uh, bear a child since I'm old? Sarah was about 89 years old at that point. Right? And the Lord said, Genesis 18, 14. The Lord said, is anything too hard for the Lord? I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you a question, and, I, and I'd like to ask you to seriously consider it. What's too hard for the Lord in your eyes? 
your bills, your kids, your marriage? What's too hard for him? You know, I think the Lord wants all of his children, and especially all of us here who call Calvary Chapel Truckee home, I think that the Lord wants us to know that God is in the miracle business. You know, Gary, you don't know. I've prayed and nothing, nothing happened. It's hopeless. May I say to you this morning, it's not hopeless. Maybe it's the wrong timing. Maybe, you know, you're not ready for it right now. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Maybe God's actually wanting to do something greater for you. Something that if he were to reveal to you right now what it is that he wants to do, it'd be so great, so so uh, beyond your ability to comprehend it right now. So he's willing to wait. You know, the Lord knows what each of us are in need of long before we even know. He knows what you're in need of before you even think to ask him. Right? He sees your situation. He's at work on your behalf. It's not hopeless. It's not impossible. Perhaps you just need to trust him. Well, that's where you're wrong, Gary. You know, I've trusted and things are getting worse. You know, I can honestly say in my life, I found things get worse because I'm actually not trusting him. I often think, you know, I can't wait any longer. You know, I have to do something. I got to do it fast. You know, and that's when I roll up my sleeves and I try to, to fix the problem in my own strength. And that's when I usually make th- matters worse. My problems just seem to get worse as I try to help God out. You know, and what I end up with is an Ishmael. God's willing to wait till we come to that place where we just give up. You know, often by that time, I've made such a, such a mess of things. It does seem hopeless, but nothing is impossible for our God. Nothing is impossible for our God. Amen. There is literally nothing out of the realm of possibility for our God. You'll never see him with his hands to his head saying, oh my goodness, what do I do now? I didn't see this coming. Right? He has resources that we've never even considered or even imagined. One angel slaying 185,000 Assyrians in a single night when Israel's faced with certain destruction. Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fish. Jesus turning water into wine. Jesus providing the temple tax for Peter and himself in the mouth of a fish. Right? Who could have ever imagined any of these solutions to the problems that were being faced in the moment? Right? We need to learn to trust the Lord when things seem impossible. We need to learn to Rest in Him. He has a plan. Right? He's al- he already has a solution for the situation that, that you could never even imagine. Secondly, I think what we want to learn from the burial of Jesus here in this passage, secondly, we need to learn that blessings come 
to those who are willing to take stands for Jesus Christ, for those who are willing to act in boldness. At any time, do you think when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were taking Jesus' body down for the cross, right? When they, when they were washing his body and preparing it for burial, when they laid him in Joseph's tomb, at any time, do you think Joseph said, you know, I wish I wouldn't have stepped forward. <laughs> yeah, I wish I would have just kept my mouth shut and minded my own business. Absolutely not. No way. Right? It was a total blessing. It was a wonderful privilege to care for uh, Jesus' body like that. Joseph stepped up and got to lovingly attend to Jesus. It was an unspeakable blessing. Joseph never regretted it for a second, I promise you. Boldness is a sign of the Spirit working in the life of a believer. And when we take stands for Christ, people will follow. When we share Christ with boldness, people will receive. Again, Gary, you know, you don't really know what you're talking about. You know, I've taken stands just to get knocked down and to be run over. May I share with you Daniel chapter 11, verse 32? Happens to be one of my favorite verses. And this verse has been proven over and over and over again in my life. And it says, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Jesus said in John 14, 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that, that I do, he will do also and greater works than these he will do. How much of a blessing would it be to see someone raised from the dead? I mean, think about it, yeah. How much of a blessing would that be? Well, hey, when we share Christ boldly, you know what? We have the opportunity to see the dead come alive to God, right? This little team that we took to Hungary saw 66, uh, sorry, 63 people raised from the dead, made alive in Jesus Christ. And it's not just happening over there, right? It's happening here too. That's why we're going to have Ken Silva come from Evangelism Explosion and do a workshop and help equip us. Equip us and show us how easy it actually is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly and boldly and effectively. And I tell you, people will receive it. How priceless would it be to see lepers cleansed before your eyes? When we share Christ with somebody who's eaten up by guilt because of the sin in their life, you know, we can offer them the forgiveness of God and see them cleansed from the incurable disease of sin. You know, I can go on and on and on. And those of you that make Calvary Chapel Truckee home are saying, yeah, we know you can. But the lessons we need to glean from this story is one, the impossible in our eyes, is nothing. It's actually less than nothing. It's trivial in the eyes of the Lord. And two, there's great blessings in us, uh, for us, if we take a stand for Jesus Christ. 
The Lord has called each of us to walk with him and place our faith in him. And he encourages us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You know, I I would encourage you, ask the Lord how he wants you to take a stand for him, how he wants you to be bold for him. He'll show you. He'll tell you. He'll speak to you. Don't waste your time looking at the situation. Look to the Savior, right? Don't worry about what people think. Worry about what the Savior thinks, right? If we'll seek to glorify Him, He'll show us His glory. If we seek to live a life that's lived radically for Him, He'll do radical things for us and through us. And we'll be blown away and encouraged to take a greater stand. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for your word. I do thank you so much for the encouragement of your word. And Lord, I pray your word would sink down into our heart and stir us. Lord, that your word would stir us like it stirred Joseph of Arimathea. Lord, that we would understand that there's nothing impossible for you. All things are possible. Nothing too hard for you. Everything's trivial. And Lord, there's great blessing in it for us as we place our faith in you and declare that that you are our Savior, our Lord to the world and to boldly follow after you, Lord. Use us for your glory, Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen.